are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Christ is baptized in the Jordan. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And uh, we are rolling along pretty well now. We are in the final few steps of the ladder, uh, 26 on discernment at the moment. It's one of the lengthier uh, steps, so we'll be at it for a little bit uh, of time here. Uh, As we've talked about, it's the fruit of humility. So once impediments of the the passions have been removed and grace has purified the heart, the capacity to, uh, to see things with a kind of clarity begins to emerge. And we talked about this a little bit at the beginning of last of the last group, some of the things that we'll be looking at it allows us to see our vices uh, clearly, uh, our intentions uh, behind our actions with greater clarity as well to discern what is from God or directed towards God or what is, arises from self and ego. Uh, the mixing of the vice and virtues that at times uh, exists within us it allows us to uh, to see and discern this as well. Why prayers are unanswered. Um, why the demons leave us at times, uh, why they, we are not tempted at times as severely as at others, what would be the reason behind that, uh, the differences between natural and supernatural virtue, and then finally, where we are in the spiritual life, having a greater sense of the where God has drawn us, what progress has been made, and where we s- still need to strive uh, with greater zeal. And so these are some of the things that we'll be looking at here in the coming weeks. Uh, For those who just joined us, we are on page 194 with saying number 23 towards the top of the page. St. John writes, the monastic life in regard to deeds, words, thoughts, and movements must be lived with heartfelt perception. Otherwise, it will not be a monastic life, let alone an angelic life. And uh, John will go into this in greater detail, especially in paragraphs 31 and 32 on the next page uh, that speaks of the monastic life uh, as a kind of angelic life, or as taking the angels as one's models, where the spiritual dominates within the heart and guides and directs us, that all things are directed toward God. And so what the monk strives for is to have all of one's faculties, all of one's actions, thoughts to be directed toward God like the angels. And, uh, and so what John is saying here, though, in this uh, particular saying, is that the, the monastic life has to be entered in with, too, with heartfelt 
perception. And so, you know, one doesn't engage in the monastic life to escape the world or to escape reality. In fact, just the opposite, that one is entering into the very heart of reality itself, God, uh, but also uh, into one's own heart, the truth about oneself uh, in the, the deepest and most clearest fashion. And one also has to do that in a heartfelt way, with zeal, with love, devotion. One uh, cannot be halfway uh, in on this in order to be able to live it fully, Have one having one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom, as it were, that one will not be able to persevere in the monastic life. And I think by extension, we would say one might not be able to grow in the spiritual life as a whole uh, when we are lukewarm uh, and seeking to hold on to our attachment to the things of this world. And in fact, we are warned about that within the scripture, you know, be hot or cold uh, because you are lukewarm, I will spew you forth. And uh, so a pretty stern warning is given to us there. John's is more gentle here, but nonetheless, the truth comes forward. Number 24, the providence of God is one thing. His help is another and his protection another. The mercy of God is another and his consolation another. Providence is displayed in all nature. So isn't that an interesting thought that we are meant to see the providence of God, the presence of God, the promise of God in all that he's created. All things are meant to, to direct us toward him and draw us toward him. And this is why I think we hear um, the fathers, as well as many modern elders, speak of the importance of wonder, our capacity to see the, the beauty of all that God has created, uh, and the mystery of the human person, uh, uh, him or herself. And uh, if we lose sight of this, then we're also going to lose sight of the presence, the providence of God, that God has made promises to us in and through his son, and uh, to share in the fullness of his life. And it is this that allows us to persevere and endure, uh, even when our, our faith has been darkened or we find ourselves struggling. And so the sense of providence allows us to, to find our way, even when things spiritually and internally seem dark to us. Help only in the faithful. So God provides his grace and strength to those who are seeking him. We might be embattled in every way, but God is ever faithful uh, to us who are faithful to him. Uh, protection in the faithful who truly have faith. So when we are embattled by the demons, uh, God uh, is swift to come to our aid when we call upon him. And so this is why we're called not only to be watchful and engage in the good fight of the good fight of faith, but to constantly call upon the Lord in the Jesus prayer. Uh, mercy in those who serve God. So uh, God will be merciful to us as we have been uh, merciful to others. And uh, 
when we pour ourselves out for others, then we can be assured of his swift aid. And then consolation in those who love him, that despite the darkness of the world, its chaos, the ugliness at times that we see there, or the affliction that we might bear through illness or at the hands of others, uh, God is always our greatest consolation. And uh, the quicker that one turns to him and turns to prayer, the quicker the consolation uh, comes to our hearts, again, of his presence uh, and his aid. Number 25. Sometimes what serves as a medicine for one is poison for another. And sometimes something given to one and the same person at a suitable time serves as a medicine. But at the wrong time, it is poison. So this is where, you know, having a capable physician, you know, certainly for our medical needs is so important. One who knows what it is that we need in order to find healing. But spiritually, uh, this is true as well. To offer the wrong counsel, guidance, uh, can lead a person to spiritual ruin if it is extreme or disordered or uh, not addressing the spiritual malady at hand. And, and so it can even, he tells us, be one and the same thing uh, for the same person at different times. So uh, advice given at a time, in a timely fashion when one is undergoing a uh, certain struggle can be healing, but if it's given at the wrong time and or prematurely in a person's spiritual life, uh, it can be something that is wounding. It can lead them astray or into greater darkness or uh, give rise to vain glory uh, within them. So, you know, having a capable spiritual guide is an important thing. And this is what he engaged. Uh, speaks to us here about in number 26. I've seen an unskilled physician who by subjecting to dishonor a sick man who was contrite in spirit only drove him to despair. And I've seen a skilled physician who operated on an arrogant heart with the knife of dishonor and drained it of all its evil smelling pus. So rather graphic, but uh, in a good way. Uh, I think it, he shows us that, you know, an unskilled physician can drive a person to despondency and despair and lead them to lose their faith altogether. If you crush a person who's filled with uh, contrition over their sin, if you shame them uh, rather than seek to lift them up, uh, then it can be destructive. But for a person who's arrogant a skilled physician who acts with his pierces that with a scalpel, you know, in one swift move can drain, he says, this of its foul smelling pus that he can remove it uh, very easily and without driving that person uh, into, into despair. And so, again, you know, we see how valuable it is to be able to sit at the feet of the Desert Fathers, those who uh, know the maladies, know the passions, how they manifest themselves, but also the particular remedies that come to us from experience. 
And so to be able to sit at their feet day after day is a blessing for us, not to be taken lightly. Number 27. I've seen one and the same sick man sometimes drink the medicine of obedience and move, walk, and not sleep in order to cleanse his impurity. And sometimes when the eye of his soul was sick, remained still and silent. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, you know, the, the person who's sick can, you know, who has this gift of discernment can apply all of these remedies in order to find healing for himself, obedience, uh, to, to move, walk, and not sleep in order to cleanse that impurity. So to en engage in this constant kind of discipline, ascetic discipline, uh, in order to find healing. Uh, but when the eye of his soul was sick, remain still and silent. So when one does not think, see things clearly, uh, often silence is, again, for us and stillness, the best path to allow ourselves uh, to wait upon the Lord, await his uh, providence to, to guide us along the path he, he desires for us. And for one reason or another, we might be blind to that path. It can be something like arrogance or pride, uh, or it can be, you know, kind of con confusion that the, the demons sow within our minds and our hearts, uh, even holding before us things that are good, but come to us at an inopportune time or that aren't in accord with the will of God. And so at those moments, rather than pressing forward, uh, that sitting back and allowing oneself to be comforted and guided by God. And you might remember a modern elder saying, you know, when all around you seems to be chaos and falling apart, you know, uh, sit back and make yourself a cup of tea. <laughs> and Everybody I know seems to love that uh, quote because I think it's saying that there are times when one must relax that discipline, ascetic discipline, and the strain on the mind in order to be able to listen to God. You remember the Carthusian, St. Bruno, saying you have to relax the bow. You can't keep it in the stretched position all the time, otherwise you will ruin the bow. You, you have to let, let it go slack. And so it is sometimes within the spiritual life that we can be pressing so hard even to do the will of God or discern the will of God that the weight of that becomes so great that we can find ourselves in deep confusion and making decisions out of goodwill, but nonetheless not something that is in accord with the will of God. And so sometimes it's best certainly not to rush forward, but to wait for him to guide us. It's a great uh, saying, I think a good one to remember. Number 28, some I know not why, for I have not learned to pry conceitedly into the gifts of God are by nature, I might say, 
prone to temperance or stillness or purity or modesty or meekness or contrition. But others, although almost their own nature itself, resist them in this, to the best of their power, force themselves. And though they occasionally suffer defeat, yet as men struggling with nature, they are, in my opinion, higher than the former. So, and should give good hope to all of us who struggle uh, with our own weaknesses and uh, with our, our own nature, that there are those characters for one reason or another uh, who have almost by nature, he says, you know, this kind of virtue where they are inclined to embrace that which is good. Uh, and so a natural virtue that then has been aided by grace allows them to sort of make their way forward. But there are others, he says, that where the, you know, the nature or appetites and desires are something that uh, keep us embattled constantly. And in his mind, he says, I think these are the greater ones, the ones who have to struggle perhaps every day, uh, you know, to remain faithful. And even if they suffer defeat, he says, uh, on occasion, uh, still the fact that they they battle and wage that battle day in and day out show, reveals their courage, their forbearance, their uh, trust in God. So John is very good about this. You know, you, you know, he understands that for some, a fall might come every single day because of this reality. And that if a person repents, though, that they are pleasing in the eye of God. And so not to become discouraged if we find ourselves struggling. And perhaps we're struggling for a long time with certain things. Number 29. Do not boast, man, of the wealth you have obtained without labor. For the bestower, foreseeing your great hurt, and infirmity and ruin at least saves you to some extent by those unmerited gifts. So, you know, a person, he talks about this a little bit later about education of the youth. <laughs> Actually, it's the next saying, I'm sorry, but uh, uh, that sometimes people, because of their grasp of things, uh, are able to take hold of them without much labor, he's saying. And, uh, but still gratitude has to go to the one who foresees the great damage that they might have done without having this capacity. And so not to think much of themselves because of that, uh, but still understand that it comes from the hand of God. Uh, David Sudersky writes, the devil speaks with a scratching, loud and gnarling voice and calls you by your sin. God calls you by name and his voice like a whisper on the wind. Only with peace and quiet can we hear the whisper. Not, uh, not who wrote this, but heard this from a priest in Spain on a retreat in the Pyrenees. Yes, you know, I think it's a, a great thought that the evil one would call us by our sin 
precisely that we might identify ourselves uh, by it rather than seeing ourselves as a son or daughter of God. And by doing this steals from us perhaps what is even more important, which would be peace of mind and heart or peace of the kingdom, that we become agitated and we are drawn into despair or even into that sin again because it's our focus more more so than god that this can be a great danger for us that when we find ourselves struggling with a particular passion we can direct so much attention to it uh, because of our uh, angst about it that we don't pray uh, as much as we're straining in our mind to try to control or contain those thoughts. Uh, it's better to move the mind swiftly and gently toward God than it is to try to wrestle those thoughts uh, into order. It's really the grace of God that gives us that capacity. Oh boy. Still there, everybody? Okay. Figure up updates come in all it's the wrong, wrong time, and one just popped up on my computer. So, number 30. Instruction in childhood, education and studies either help or hinder us in virtue and in the monastic way of life when we come of age. So, you know, the kind of formation and education that uh, shapes the person and attends to the human formation as a whole can aid a person when they come of age in that pursuit of virtue. But education as an end in itself or abstracted from the formation of the person of the mind and the heart can lead to, only to arrogance. And we can develop a kind of conceit of knowledge as well, that because we're educated in one area, we can believe that we see and understand a whole host of things that we have no clue of because there's we have no real experience of it in our life. And, um, and so this is a uh, even though John doesn't talk about childhood uh, very much, this is an important statement. You know, how is it that we look to the formation of the youth? And um, Cardinal Newman understood this too, and in, in the sense of the study of the humanities, when he could already see in his time, you know, colleges, universities, you know, breaking down into like professional schools rather than the formation of, of the intellect. And, uh, and this can be uh, a real problem because we set aside what really shapes us as human beings and that what affects then the shape of our culture and the way that we engage others, the, the, the things that we appreciate within the world, what is good, what is beautiful and true. And when we lack the capacity to understand these things, you know, we might be very skilled in one area, but again, you know, 
how does that shape our minds and our hearts to love God, to love others, or to pursue virtue? And so I think this is what John is saying, that you know, we might see when they come of age what real benefit, what fruit it has for them. You know, if, if it leads to arrogance, and then we know that there was something lacking there. Number 31, angels are a light for monks, and the monastic life is a light for all men. Therefore, let monks strive to become a good example in everything, giving no occasion for stumbling in anything in all their works and words. For if the light becomes darkness, how much darker will be that darkness that is those living in the world? We're afraid to say the, these kind of things today, and uh, I think there is a kind of failure within the life of the church to foster the monastic life. And, uh, and when that happens, there is a kind of darkness that begins to emerge because there becomes a disconnect with the spiritual tradition. The monasteries have always been this place of nourishment spiritually uh and not only through teaching but you know through as john speaks about here the example every word every thought every deed has its impact and strengthens the church as a whole and if this goes dark you know if they no longer seek to emulate the angels to have their full focus upon god then how great the darkness will be for the world as a whole that it will have lost its light. And uh, there's a wonderful book uh, written by Boniface, Father Boniface Looks, um, and it's called The, um, the Eastern Church's uh, Eastern Monasticism and the Future of the Church. Extraordinary work, speaks about this in detail and I th think needs to be read deeply. And uh, there's also another work called uh, The Secret Seminary, uh, written by Father Pelfrey, and that uh, speaks about the kind of formation that one would want for one's priest that is along the lines of what we find in the formation of the fathers, that this is what we, how we should be engaging in formation uh, in order that they might serve those in their care fruitfully. Uh, and uh, so those are two books that I would highly recommend and that look at the spiritual life in the fashion that John is speaking of here in 31, but also in the uh, saying that follows. If you will listen to me, he writes, you who are willing to do so, it is better for us not to diversify ourselves or divide up our poor soul in doing battle with thousands of thousands and tens th ten thousands of ten thousands of enemies. For it is not in our power to comprehend or even to discover all their host. And so you, you might have some thoughts about how you would read this, but reading it in light of uh, paragraph 23 and 31, uh, 
you know, John says we do well not to diversify ourselves, fragment ourselves in the pursuit of many different things as monks, that our purpose is to stand before God and worship in prayer and to pursue purity of heart. And if we give ourselves over uh, to many different works and uh, uh, we engage in, in labors that pull us away from this kind of spiritual battle, as he said, with uh, thousands of thousands and ten thousands of ten thousands of enemies, that this is the work of the monk to engage in this spiritual warfare in order that from that experience, he might speak the, the truth to others or be a witness to that truth. And if we diversify ourselves and pursue all these different things, even though they might seem to have value within the world and even within the church, there you are stepping away from the fundamental work of the monk. And I think this is an extremely important thought that, uh, you know, there is this kind of value put on labor uh, that is very worldly uh, and that sees the active life not as the struggle with the passions and for the virtues and to develop the prayer life, but to accomplish and build certain things. And so I think it would have been foreign to John and to the Eastern Desert Fathers to be engaged in uh, what we see more often in the West, which would be, you know, teaching and doing, you know, a, a multitude of different kinds of works that perhaps draw one into the world and away uh, more from the pursuit of what is being put forward in this book as it being at the very heart of the monastic life. Uh, Sharon Fisher, please repeat the second book you referred to. It's called The Secret Seminary, and the author is Father Pelfrey, P-E-L-P-H-R-P-H-F-R-E-Y, I believe it is. Uh, a priest actually from Phoenix uh, this summer gave it to me, and once I started reading it, I consumed it because I'd been thinking about this for years, and we've talked many times here about seminary formation, and uh, uh, um, you know, many of the Eastern seminaries have followed sort of the Western seminaries and their priestly program for formation. And uh, I think there's a kind of wisdom from the East though, that needs to be taken hold, hold of in a deeper measure. You know, not simply having classes on the spiritual life, but really having the spiritual life and the liturgical life be what shapes the mind and the heart of future priest. And not that the study of other things isn't important or part of that, but uh, I think it often gets short shrift. Uh, that is the spiritual life. Anthony writes, that prejudice for the active life goes back to the Reformation, I think is a way to justify the Reformation. I saw a revival in Josephism of the, uh, of the 1700s and 1800s. Yeah, I think that would be part of it. I think the Enlightenment as well, I think is, you know, an, where another huge shift 
takes place, uh, you know, culturally, not only within the church and uh, of placing the person at the center of things rather than God. And, uh, and not, it's no small shift. Uh, it's more of an upheaval. So a lot to contemplate there. And, uh, and so again, you know, I think we're very, very fortunate to, to read these deeply uh, because it is like a secret seminary. We, <laughs> we have our own little secret seminary here on Zoom is what it feels like at times. Because, you know, I feel like I've learned more from reading the fathers and it's not like I've read all of them. You know, I've, you know, I've certainly had those that I've focused on more and I've learned more from that than I learned in seminary altogether. And, and it's because of what where they are teaching from and that's from experience the experience of god and uh you know these things cannot be learned from books you know we can have a pretty good guide here but ultimately you have to seek to live it and imitate the monks or our, our reading of it as uh might not have the value we imagine Number 33, with the help of the Holy Trinity, let us battle with three against three. Otherwise, we shall make much toil for ourselves. So with the help of God, struggle with three against three. And thank goodness they provide a footnote for this because I would not have been able <laughs> to decipher it. So poverty, chastity, and obedience against cupidity, sensuality, ambition, or avarice, sensuality, ambition. So the formation of these virtues, poverty, uh, both poverty of spirit and material, chastity, and obedience, you know, letting go of willfulness, all of these, these three things then allow us to overcome the three that cause us the greatest harm in this battle, spiritual battle. So thank you, Monks, for providing that uh, footnote. Let's see, number 34. If he who turneth the sea into dry land really abides in us, then our Israel too, that is the mind that beholds God, will certainly cross the sea untossed and will see the Egyptians sunk in the waters of tears. But if he has not yet made his abode in us, who will stand the roaring of the waves of the sea, that is, of our flesh? Almost, again, poetic. I, mean, I love John and the, the fathers for this, you know, that he could take this image from scripture you know, of the Israelites passing through the Red Sea, you know, that it's God who brings them, you know, to safety and free free from the grasp of the Egyptians, uh, turns the, the water into dry land so that they might pass freely. And if we, you know, who are we to think that we could cross the sea of life, as it were, uh, without the aid of God? Uh, being pursued relentlessly uh, by a, a far more 
uh, deadly enemy, as it were, the, the, the demons, but the aided by our own flesh, by the appetites, our bodily appetites. So uh, again, a wonderful image, and we see how deeply rooted they are in the scripture uh, and their understanding of the spiritual life. That it's, you know, Israel's reliance upon God and being guided by God uh, that brings them to freedom. It's when they turn away from him uh, that they experience the, the fruit of that disobedience. Even Moses himself, you know, striking the rock twice. You remember the story where, you know, they're, uh, and uh, it reveals kind of lack of faith in the word of God. And for this reason that he's only allowed to see from afar the promised land. And, uh, but uh, this is striking here, you know, that the battle that we undergo is, uh, is an extreme one and requires an extreme faith on our, our, our part. Uh, Anthony has a question, then we'll go to Rory here. Anthony writes, that prejudice for the act, oh no, okay, I'll read that one. So Rory, go ahead. Yeah, Father David, can you uh, give me some type of, um, I guess, way to understand the experience of God, the experience of me, is it all one in the same? Or how would you explain that, please? Well, goodness sake, where do I begin? Uh, just read the book over again uh, from step one. Uh, but, you know, I think in all seriousness, uh, it's God who reveals himself to us. And he's revealed himself to us in his son. Uh, you know, you asked to see the Father. You, you, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so God has revealed himself, re volare, which means to draw back, to pull back the veil. So God has pulled back the veil that we might see for ourselves, God as he is, uh, and, and the nature of his love. And he's done this... To, uh, uh, in a definitive, unique, and unrepeatable fashion in his son, that there's nothing greater or fuller to be revealed to us than what has been revealed to us in the Lord. So to seek this experience of him, to know him, is, is enough to keep our gaze fixed upon Christ and, um, and to pray for the gift of faith. Uh, I think one of the areas where we struggle is that we lose sight of the fact that it is a gift and that God bestows it upon us in order that we might uh, enter into this relationship and enter into it so deeply that we begin to experience God as he is in himself, that we are drawn into the very life of the Holy Trinity. So, you know, understanding, again, that God has revealed himself to, to us. He has loved us first. And that humility and faith are, is the narrow path to him and to this ex experience of him uh, in its fullness, that we take hold of the path that he's opened up for us. 
So I'm sure there's a lot more that could be said, but you know, for the sake of time, that's where I would stop at this point. All right, number 35. If through our activity, God arises in us, his enemies will be scattered. And if we draw near to him by divine vision, those who hate him will flee from before his face and ours. And so if we engage in this activity, and by activity, they're speaking there of the ascetic life, life of prayer, of fasting, of everything that we've talked about. If we engage in this, then our enemies will be scattered. The more that we seek this intimacy with God and enter into it, the, the more the enemies will be scattered. And again, it's a humbling thing. It's through our entering into the life that he's made possible for us that brings us, to, brings us freedom. And it's not something that we've earned. And if uh, we draw near to him by divine vision, by the light that he gives to us, uh, those who hate him will flee before his face and ours. So even the, the demons themselves will flee from us uh, because uh, the, our countenance will be a reflection of that of Christ. The glory of God will shine forth uh, from within us to make the enemies of God flee. It's an extraordinary thing. You know, again, we're left to wonder with the psalmist, you know, who are we as human beings that you would love us in this way, that you would give us such things? Number 36. Let us try to learn divine truth more by toil and sweat than by mere word. For at the time of our departure, it is not words, but deeds that will have to be shown. So to move from the notional to the real, you know, by sweat and toil, by giving oneself over truly uh, to engage in the battle uh, and to have our faith move from the mind to the heart and uh, is ever so important. And the way that it does that is by exercising that faith, that is asceticism, by putting it into practice, by living the gospel. And this is what uh, we will have to give an account for, uh, you know, how we've invested ourselves and the faith the gifts that god has given to us have we buried it in the ground have we left it you know in our minds or have we you know buried it deep uh within the heart through uh living it uh, and uh by tilling the soil of the heart uh through sweat and toil Number 37, those who hear of treasure hidden in a certain place, seek it, and having discovered it, take trouble to keep what they have found. But those who get rich without trouble 
readily squander their possessions. So, you know, often when things seem to come easy uh, to us, that they can be taken for granted, that we lose sight of the preciousness of the gift that we have not sacrificed uh, to obtain and also to protect. And, uh, and so, you know, when our spiritual life seems to come easy to us and, uh, and we do not engage in the spiritual life in such a way that reveals that we treasure the gifts that God has given to us, that we hold them precious and protect them. Uh, you know, we, in many ways, we have to be like Joseph, that what is holy is being born into the world. You know, Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit, and the first thing that Joseph wants to do is run away, to flee, or to send Mary away. And, you know, he's told in a dream, no, you have to take the role of his father. You have to name him, establish his true lineage. And in this, he is to be the guardian and a protector, again, of what is holy being born into the world. And we see this acted out in a very concrete way, you know, that, you know, uh, fleeing to Egypt uh, and even coming back, you know, moving to a place where the child can be protected. Uh, and so, uh, protecting that which is holy. And so for us, you know, what is holy is born within us. We become God bearers when we receive the Holy Eucharist, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we are to be the guardians and protectors of that, to hold it to be that which is most treasured. And I think, again, our life would take on a different character if that were so. And our attitude towards prayer and the ascetical life would alter as well, that for us it would not seem uh, as an extraordinary requirement or obligation, but that which is taken up freely because, again, we see the value of what has been given to us as well as entrusted to us. And again, I think this puts into perspective everything that we've been reading about and even the things that seem so extreme in our minds and even bordering on the absurd or the insane. You know, why would a person do that? And the answer is for love. And, you know, that they're in order to protect that, you know, they're willing to, to strive to the point of you know driving themselves beyond uh what others are willing to do in regards to prayer and, and the ascetic life of fasting of vigils so on any comments so far a lot to, to think about already number 38 it is difficult to overcome former bad habits, and those who keep on adding further new ones to them either fall into despair or get no benefit at all from obedience. But I know that to God all things are possible, and to him nothing is impossible. 
So, you know, that sin that has grown habitual is very difficult to uproot, as we've often talked about, and uh, and how important it is to uh, pull sin up by the roots as yanking a sapling out of the ground, roots, roots and all. And so to do so swiftly as soon as we see it growing. But if we allow it to grow and allow it to become habitual, then it becomes uh, a tree. And for some of us, a sequoia, you know, one of those <laughs> giant uh, trees and no matter what we would do there's no uprooting it and uh, and yet here you know John still still puts forward a word of hope you know with with us of course it's impossible but with him all things are possible that even those sins that have become habitual and taken hold of us uh, that God can uproot them in his mercy and if we open that door, to faith, uh, uh, by faith, uh, to the grace of God and compunction and humility, immediately a flood of grace uh, can enter and work the impossible. Number 39, certain people ask me a question difficult to solve and which is beyond the powers of anyone like me. And it is not to be found in any of the books that have reached me. For they said, what are the particular offspring of the eight deadly sins? Or which of the three chief sins is the father of the other five minor sins? But, but by pleading praiseworthy ignorance as regards this difficulty, I learned from the holy men the following. The mother of lust is gluttony, and the mother of despondency is vainglory. Sorrow and also anger are the offspring of those three, avarice, cupidity, sensuality, ambition, and the mother of pride is vainglory. And, you know, it, it, we might wonder why this seems to be so important in the fathers of being able to see, you know, and name, you know, who's your mother, you know, from whence do you come? Uh, and uh, it's in order that we might direct uh, the battle where it needs to be fought and direct our energies there. And, you know, lust is a very powerful thing. And but for the person who's fighting it, the place to begin, they learned, is dealing with gluttony of uh, engaging in fasting to humble another bodily appetite. To, so to humble the body through fasting, then if we humble this one appetite, then we can fight a battle with another bodily appetite, sensuality. And, uh, and so again, you see why it's always first on the list, whether it's the seven capital sins or the eight vices from the East, that uh, gluttony is number one. Again, not because it's necessarily the most serious, uh, but uh, unless one fights that battle there, progress in the spiritual life uh, can be minimal. We might not be able to overcome the ones that are, are far more difficult to overcome. And this is why he says, you know, even 
uh, in, the, in the previous paragraph, you know, even, even if there's obedience on some level, you know, if, if one is not engaging in that life and fighting that battle where it needs to be fought, then few gains are going to be made. David Sudersky writes, where would resentment be placed? Uh, be placed, I have seen despondency and also pride in being a victim. Okay. Or would resentment be placed? I have seen despondency and also pride in being a victim. Yes, you know, I think, uh, especially in our day, I think that's true. Um, you know, to see oneself as a victim, again, to make oneself the, the focus, you know, of, of life itself. And rather than seeing, you know, our participation in the sin of the world, and the solidarity that exists there in sin, we have a tendency to make ourselves uh, uh, the victim. And so, you know, fall into pride without understanding it, understanding, you know, that we're part of the cause. Very good. Uh, let's see here, a couple others came in. Sharon Fisher writes, just FYI to participants, the level of detail we get with Father David's discussions about the Father's writings is not found in many places. I'll put a plug in for the guided book study on YouTube. Thank you, that's very kind. Uh, St. Silouan, the Athenite guided book study with uh, Isaac Lampart, uh, written by Archimandrite Sophrony. The videos are hosted by Annunciation, Greek Orthodox Church in Lancaster, PA. Yes, I've heard of all these, very good. And uh, M. Hinckley writes, that's virtue signaling. Uh, just the other side of vainglory coin, no. Uh, which is virtue signaling? Just so I'm clear on what you're saying, can you offer a little bit of clarity there? Despondency, and, and, okay, and also pride in being the victim. Yeah, virtue, virtue signaling. I, okay, I see what you're saying there. Yeah, because often that's what it is, you know, playing the victim, uh, but really not, not pursuing the virtue any more fully than anybody else, you know, put, putting on airs. Okay, number 40. In reply to this statement, of those ever memorable fathers, I began again earnestly to ask them to tell me about the pedigree of the eight sins, which exactly are born from which. And these dispassionate men kindly instructed me saying, the irrational passions have no order or reason, but they have every sort of disorder and every kind of chaos. And the blessed fathers confirmed this by convincing examples and supplied many proofs, some of which we, uh, we are including in the present chapter, that by them, and as regards the rest, we may be enlightened. So the irrational passions, you know, that those in which the intellect really does not play a role, so bodily appetites, you know, those things that are a part of our physical makeup, you know, they can wreak havoc, but not necessarily with any kind of order, 
They just toss us about in any way that they can or that we let them do so. And to these, he will give us examples as we, as we move forward. The sort of thing I mean is this. Untimely jesting is sometimes born of lust and sometimes of vainglory when a man impiously puts on a pious air and sometimes, too, of luxury. So untimely jesting, it's a curious thing, isn't it, that it can be born of lust. You know, it can stir up passions in ourselves and others, especially when it surrounds certain subject matter. Uh, sometimes it can give rise to vain, vainglory, uh, that we uh, are jesting about another, perhaps, uh, to elevate ourselves, uh, perhaps, uh, when a man impiously puts on a pious air. And so, you know, jesting about uh, the foibles, the failures, the natural defects of others can be a way of making one seem greater in the eyes of others and sometimes to luxury. Uh, and so untimely jesting, uh, you know, can lessen the gravity of the soul in the sense of the things that we are at attentive to. And then this falling by the wayside, then we can give ourselves over to, you know, uh, extravagant meals or the purchase of material things that we we do not need, you know, simply because we've been engaging in this behavior. So again, these are really wonderful examples. And I think to go back and read them will be important as well as the previous paragraphs, uh, because this is, this is really uh, the trenches where the battle is fought. And so to see this kind of working within us and in our mind and our actions becomes very important. And he's going to go on and talk about it. sleep, talkativeness, despondency, blasphemy, a whole host of other things, which we will pick up and uh, looking at here in future sessions. Okay. That brings us pretty close to 8.30 uh, before we end. I just wanted to remind you that next week there will be no groups. Uh, I'm going to be on retreat for the week. And uh, keep me in prayer as I'll be praying for all of you as well. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again. It's always hard uh, not to have the groups, but hopefully come back renewed and ready to go at it again before Lent. So thank you all. And why don't we close as always with, with our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.